Our confessional lesson this evening is drawn from the Belgic Confession, and we'll be reading Article 33, and that's found on page 867 in the back of your hymnals. Article 33. We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace toward us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming us in the salvation that he imparts to us. For they are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible, by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are not empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us, for their truth is Jesus Christ, without whom they would be nothing. Moreover, we are satisfied with the number of sacraments that Christ, our Master, has ordained for us. There are only two, the sacrament of baptism and the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ. In this article, we have a clear and articulate statement of the Reformed doctrine of the sacraments. I want to begin with a very basic observation. Sacraments are material. For this reason, they are perceptible to the senses. For example, the water in the baptismal font, the bread and the wine on the Lord's table are material realities, perceptible to the senses. To the reformers, even apart from the meaning and content of the individual sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, this in itself was significant. To illustrate this point, let me remind you of a line from Psalm 103. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. The mercy and kindness of God that the psalmist declares here finds expression in God's gift of the sacraments to us. God's truth in and of itself is firm and sure enough, and it cannot receive better confirmation from any other source than from itself. This is what Calvin affirms. But because we are weak, because we are slow to learn, and because our minds are dull, God gives us the sacraments that we can touch, taste, and see to make the promises of the gospel more certain and evident to us. In Calvin's teaching on the sacraments, on which this article very closely depends, there's a line that the students of this great reformer have have known well. In the sacraments, Calvin writes, our merciful Lord, according to his infinite kindness, so tempers himself to our capacity that since we are creatures who always creep on the ground, cleave to the flesh, and do not think about or even conceive of anything spiritual, he condescends to lead us to himself even by these earthly elements and to set before us in the flesh a mirror of spiritual blessings. 
Hearing the word for us is not enough because of our crudeness and weakness. The language of the Belgic Confession here is very strong. It's not that the word in itself is insufficient or that there's anything lacking in it, but evidently there is in us something lacking that prevents us from grasping the truth of the word. So what does God do about it? In his great mercy and according to his infinite kindness, God condescends to us with the sacraments, a very interesting term of which Calvin is very fond. Let's hasten to add, however, that the sacraments themselves are mute. For example, there's nothing inherent in water. There's no natural symbolism in bread and wine that somehow qualifies and enables them to communicate to us the truths of the gospel. That is to say, we can learn nothing about God's grace in Jesus Christ by these elements alone. Therefore, it's necessary to affirm that the elements are never without the word of the gospel. The reformers received as axiomatic the definition of a sacrament that Augustine formulated. Let the word be added to the element and it becomes a sacrament. Commenting on this definition, Calvin asks, from where, for example, comes the great power of water that in touching the body, it should cleanse the heart unless the word makes it so? The Belgic Confession expresses this Augustinian definition eloquently when it states, he has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation that he imparts to us. In representing the promises of the gospel to us, the sacraments function as signs. Now, theologians make a distinction between a natural sign and an instituted sign. A natural sign is like smoke. Smoke is a sign of a fire, or laughter is a sign of joy or pleasure or happiness. But there are also instituted signs. These appear when people agree that certain signs should have specific meanings. For example, people have agreed that a red light at an intersection means stop, and a green one means go. There's nothing inherent in these colors as such, if you think about it. It's an arbitrary decision to assign to them these meanings, but it's a decision that's accepted almost everywhere in the world. Otherwise, our traffic flows would not work. Sacraments are also instituted signs. They have been instituted by the Lord. They have specific means, uh, meanings, and as they are displayed or exhibited, God is telling us something. Or more accurately, God is confirming to us what he has told us in his word. The sacraments also function as seals. They serve to authenticate the promises contained in the gospel. Calvin refers in this regard to government documents or king's seals to our king's edicts to which seals are attached when added to the writing they confirm 
or seal or authenticate the contents. To the promises of the gospel, God adds the seal of the sacraments. In this regard, I recall uh, Martin Luther uh, comparing the promises in the gospel to a testament or a, a will or a legacy that God leaves to us, his people, the church. Now, if you have a will or a legacy that is full of bequests and promises and it bears a proper legal seal, then the seal guarantees the execution of the will or the transfer of the assets. The sacraments as seals attest that the promises of God are true and reliable. There's nothing as reliable as the word of God. There's nothing as sure as his promises. By now we should be convinced, if we were not already, that word and sacrament go together. The Lord has added them to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses what he enables us to understand by his word, to repeat the language of the article. Although the word should always go first, the sacraments should always follow. They don't have a lesser degree of importance and worth. And then the Lord makes visible what is audible in the word. They are visual aids to the message of the gospel, as we have been saying. Now, as you know, in the Protestant tradition, there's been a tendency to separate word and sacrament. This was certainly not in keeping with Calvin's desire. In fact, Calvin wanted to celebrate the Lord's Supper at least once a week, as he wrote. Some in the church say, or at least demonstrate by their actions, or we should say by their inaction, that we need the preaching of the word, but we can do without the sacraments. And some, unfortunately, may be sitting in churches for years listening to the word, but seldom participating in the sacraments. But if we're doing this, then we're forfeiting that which God has given to us to nourish and sustain our faith, and we thereby do damage to the life of grace. Let's make one more important observation before concluding our consideration of this article. The sacraments are efficacious. This may come as a shock to some, After all, wasn't it the case that at the heart of the controversies of the Reformation, it was precisely this claim? Rome claimed that the sacraments conferred God's grace, ex operum operato. It may be a Latin phrase that you've heard from Pastor Chip before, but it just means literally from the work worked. That is to say, the performance of the sacraments by a priest ordained and authorized to perform them sufficed to confer the grace that they signify, provided that the recipient was not in a state of mortal sin. Now, the reformers objected to this claim. There's no secret force or power within the sacraments by which they are able to confer or even confirm the grace in and of themselves. Nor does the priest have this power in virtue of the sacrament of holy orders to make this happen. But what then is the alternative? The opponents of the reformers charge them 
of emptying the sacraments of what tradition has always maintained about them, that in fact they are efficacious, that in fact they do confer what they signify. And Calvin and the Reformed camp replied that this charge was totally baseless. Calvin famously wrote that the sacrament is not a naked sign. It is not a nude sign. The sacraments are filled with the substance that they signify, and that substance is no less than Jesus Christ himself. Calvin claimed that God is present and active in them in his instituting them by the power of the Holy Spirit. God executes what he promises and represents in the sign. Therefore, it's not true that the signs lack effect. The question here is whether God acts in them freely by his own power or resigns this office to the outward signs themselves. That's, what he, that's how Calvin puts it. And he opts decisively for the former. He writes, The sacraments properly fulfill their office only when the Spirit comes to them, by whose power alone hearts are penetrated and affections moved, and souls are open for the sacraments to enter in. There's a division to be made between the Spirit and the sacraments. The power to act rests with the former. The ministry is left to the latter. A ministry empty and useless apart from the action of the Holy Spirit, but one charged with great effect when the Spirit works within them and thereby manifests God's power. The Belgic Confession admirably reflects this teaching when it states that the sacraments are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. There, there does seem to be a nod to Calvin when, when, the, when the Confession goes on to say that they're not empty and, and hollow signs. You can, see, you can hear also behind this language the charge that the opponents of the reformers are making. If you deprive these sacraments of the efficacy, you're not only going against tradition, you're making them uh, naked, empty, and hollow. But God works through the sacraments not only to confirm and seal to our senses the promise of his word, he also works in them internally in our hearts. So the sacraments not only picture something, that is to say picture the washing away of sin or the giving up of Christ's body and the shedding of his blood, but they, they work in the hearts of the believer by the Holy Spirit. They confirm in them the salvation that God imparts to us. To be sure, God's grace can be confirmed by the teaching and preaching of the word, but it is the nature of the sacraments to do so according to Reformed teaching. That's why God has given them to us. They are a gift from God. Nothing confirms grace as the sacraments do. Whoever embraces this truth is a well-assured believer who has received what God has provided to live uh, confident in his faith. Article 33 concludes, we are satisfied with the, with the number of sacraments that Christ our Master has ordained for us. There are only two, the sacrament of baptism 
and the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ. The, the Reformed tradition acknowledges what, what, what is commonly called as uh, um, the dominical sacraments, that is, those that have been instituted by the Lord himself. It does not assign, to, um, it does not assign the status of a sacrament to the five that, that Rome has added to these two. Um, confirmation, anointing of the sick, holy orders, reconciliation and, reconciliation and marriage. These are practices in which the, the church can and does engage, but they, they don't signify and confer grace. So we, we should develop an appreciation for the Reformed doctrine of the sacraments. Um, we should see uh, on the basis of, of this article alone that the Reformed tradition does not have a low view of, of the sacraments, despite what, what many outside this tradition uh, have, have maintained, and, and maybe even despite what, what the practices of many churches that stand in this tradition may, may suggest. Um, it seems to me that on this doctrine, the, the Reformed concede nothing to the Lutherans, the Anglicans, and the Roman Catholics. It, it just may be the case that among um, many of our churches, our, our practice has to catch up with our doctrine. Our scripture for this evening is found in the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 13 through 22. Hear now the word of God. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What signs do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Thus far ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You know, occasionally someone will call our church and ask about barriers to access. Uh, and by this question, they usually mean, is is your church wheelchair accessible? We, we, we do reply that we have an elevator that provides direct access to the sanctuary, and that usually satisfies them. They thank us and then hang up. So what about barriers to access? In our culture today, we are indignant, even outraged, when, for whatever reason, people are prevented from access to an institution or an activity, or from participating in them. We open all things to everyone. We are all inclusive. To be otherwise is to be mean at best and evil at worst. Uh, 
Of course, this poses its own problems, especially for the church where pastors and congregations are pressured to abandon orthodox doctrinal and moral stances to accommodate beliefs and behaviors that run contrary to them. At the same time, none can deny that there is illegitimate social exclusion to which most of us are in fact sensitive, especially if we bear our own scars because of it. In this case, it is good. It's right and even necessary to remove barriers to access. In our text this evening, there are people who are coming to the temple to worship God. It is the time of the Passover. And as you know, this is one of three annual pilgrimage feasts for the Jewish people. That means regardless of where they lived, they had to go up to Jerusalem, to the holy city, to worship at the temple. A modern-day parallel is the Hajj in Islam, the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, which every able-bodied adult Muslim is expected to make at least once in a lifetime. But Jesus is not a Muslim. He is a Jew, and so he too has gone up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But when he arrives at the temple, he doesn't like what he sees. There are people there who are selling cattle, sheep, and doves. And there are money changers seated at the tables. Now, at first glance, we may ask, What's wrong with this picture? This is a temple. This is a place of worship. It's not a 4-H fair. But the vendors and the money changers in the courts of the temple, it may surprise you to learn, are there to serve an important purpose. The people celebrate Passover by bringing a lamb to the temple for sacrifice. If they do not have one, they have to go to the vendor to buy one. And if they do not have Jewish shekels to pay for it, they have to go to the money changers to exchange their currency for the shekels. And so the vendors and the money changers are there at the temple for a legitimate reason. But if they do in fact serve this purpose, then why is Jesus so indignant? Indeed, he seems to be more than indignant. He seems so upset by what he sees that he makes a whip out of cords, overturns the tables, and drives them out. The answer is that the vendors and the money changers are defrauding the people. If, for example, a family brought their own lamb to the temple for sacrifice, they'd have to present it first to the temple authorities who would inspect it. Recall that the Passover ritual requires that the animal be a year-old lamb or goat without blemish or defect. After inspecting it, the temple authorities may reject the animal and direct the family to one of the vendors from whom they could buy one suitable for sacrifice. Colluding together, the inspectors and the vendors, we could say, had a pretty good hustle going. Now, if the family could not afford to pay for one of the animals, the temple authorities could simply turn them away. 
But if the family happened to have money, not only, only not in Jewish shekels, they, of course, could go to the money changers. But there's a barrier here, too. For the, the, the money changer sets a high exchange rate to maximize profits. The, the, the money changer is the, is the ancient equivalent of that attendant that, that sits behind those counters at the airport for the currency exchange. Both, both gouge the customer because they realize that the people needs the money now. And that's the only option. Now Jesus sees and knows what's going on here. Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise or a marketplace. They've turned the temple into a marketplace. They failed to respect its primary purpose, which is the worship of God. Jesus' opposition here is consistent with what he elsewhere teaches in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. You cannot serve both God and money. How can God be worshipped and loved with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength in the face of power, the attraction, the desire of money? How can we find a place in our hearts for God's law, which for God's covenant people marks out the way by which we show love to God and to God's people? Now, as we all know, marketing religion is, in fact, a common feature of the contemporary American landscape. I mean, before uh, we had before we had televangelists, they promise blessings in exchange for money. They they invite us to send send them uh, seed seed money. I don't know. They have all these uh, they have all these formulas uh, by which they promise uh, blessings in exchange for uh, money that uh, naive, gullible, and unsuspecting people uh, will send to them. You know, a pastor friend once told me about one of his, his, his trips, and he said that on, uh, uh, on the airplane he sat next to a man in sales. And the man was boastfully, eagerly uh, told my friend about his business successes. He wanted to, to impress him, I suppose, with how much money he'd made as a shrewd uh, salesman. Momentarily tired of talking about himself, he finally paused, turned to the pastor and asked him what he did for a living. And, and, and the pastor said that he was in Christian ministry. The salesman hesitated for a moment to take in what the minister said and then replied, ministry, huh? Well, well there's money in that if you work it right. Amassing wealth uh, solely for oneself is a form of theft, as thoughtful Christians down through the centuries have observed. The more you have, the more you are occupied, the less, in fact, you give. The rich are never satisfied. They always need something more. You probably have heard this before, but the American tycoon John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough? And he answered, what? Just a little more. And this was already after he owned almost 90% of the, 
of the oil and gas industry of his time. In relative terms, in fact, uh, Rockefeller's wealth exceeded that of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. The temple is the place of God's presence. God's desire is to reside with his people. We see this already in Exodus when he tells the people through Moses, make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. This, of course, referred to the tabernacle, which we can say is a predecessor to the temple. The temple is the place where people can worship God, offer their prayers to God, but there are barriers to access as we see them in this passage. And this is what upsets Jesus more than anyone else. He wants people, God's people, to have access to God's presence. He wants his father to be their father. Indeed, he died and uh, rose again to give them this access, this filial relationship with God. Is this not what is related in, uh, by him uh, to Mary, Mary Magdalene at the end of John's gospel after his resurrection? He appears to her and says, Go tell my followers I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. And so we, we can begin to understand his reaction. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise, a marketplace. The disciples recalled a line from Psalm 69 and later applied it to Jesus. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, you, you, you can suppose that the temple authorities may object. The temple needs funds for upkeep. The place, the place of worship ought to receive care and honor. We maintain it with reverence. We adorn it with beauty. That may be true. But the problem with relying on a market economy to deliver religious services is reflected in an old joke. Sure, like the Ritz Hotel, open to rich and poor alike. Although all may be allowed to buy what they need, not everyone can afford to do so. Jesus, we see here, will not tolerate that. He is troubled by what he sees, and so he springs into action. Now, the ensuing commotion startles us. It doesn't seem to be in keeping with Jesus' character. Rather, it seems to be an outburst of uncontrolled or even violent anger. But the reaction of the temple authorities suggests otherwise. They ask him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? It's an interesting reaction to what we would consider perhaps to be a burst, outburst of, of excessive anger. And these words really make no sense to us unless we understand the religious world of the ancient Jewish people. They are asking, in fact, Jesus whether or not he is a prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets often relied on what Bible commentators call sign acts. They relied on sign acts to communicate a difficult message that the people otherwise might ignore. 
They dramatize it. There's nothing like a dramatic gesture or action that brings to life one's words. Bible commentary Gary Smith uh, tells us that the sign act aims to teach the central point of the prophet's message in an attention-getting, interesting, or even shocking way. If Jesus is a prophet, then what he has done in making a whip of cords, overturning the tables, and driving out the animals that are used for sacrifice is a sign act. No doubt the temple authorities could recall the prophecy from Zechariah 14.21. No longer shall there be a traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. So we can say that not only is he a prophet, he is fulfilling prophecy. But the temple authorities want authentication. What proof can they give can he give to them that he's a prophet? And the reply that Jesus gives is another sign act, right? Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Of course, as is the pattern in John's gospel, uh, Jesus' interlocutors totally misunderstand him. He speaks to them of spiritual realities. They're not thinking on that plane. They're thinking only of material realities. They don't make the connection. They think that he's referring to to the Jerusalem temple. We need a historical reminder here. Herod the Great began the reconstruction of the temple in 19 BC, and ongoing construction continued throughout Jesus' day, even up to the time that it was totally demolished uh, during the sack of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. No prophet, regardless of how great he is, could do in three days what it has taken 46 years to accomplish. That's what is going on in their minds. But Jesus is not referring to the temple. He's referring to his body. In fact, we can say his body is the temple. He is the living dwelling place of God on earth. He is the place where God resides. In him all the fullness of the deity dwells. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Of course, this is a truth that many churches take as their, as their theme during Christmas holidays. We mean here the incarnation. The word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Gospel of John announces this already to us in the first chapter, verse 14. Bible students point out that the word translated made his dwelling is related to the word tabernacle. The tabernacle was the portable temple that accompanied Israel during her wilderness sojourn. It was the predecessor to the Jerusalem temple, as we've already mentioned. So Jesus is a prophet here, but he's more than a prophet. He is the temple. That is to say, he is the very presence of God with his people. The presence and glory of God is inseparable from the person and body of Jesus, the Son of God, destroyed but raised up in three days. Through the resurrected and glorified Jesus, we can go to meet with God, to worship God, and to offer our prayers to God. Jesus 
as our temple. Jesus, in fact, confirms this later in the Gospel of John when he tells his disciples that he is the only way to God, that all who come to the Father must go through him. We shouldn't lose sight of this. We shouldn't take it for granted. In the ancient world, the temples were the houses for the gods. They were served by an elite class of priests. They weren't really gathering places for people. And even the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple, as a place for the presence of God, was accessible only to one person, the high priest, and that only once a year. But by the death of Jesus, we may enter into the most holy place by a new and living way open to us through the veil, which is his body, according to the author of the letter to the Hebrews. In this regard, Jesus embodies the free offer of salvation by God to the people, as we read it in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you without money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. These are the images of the salvation that God freely offers. The temple authorities can be seen to have contradicted this message. In effect, they rescind this invitation that God extends through the prophet Isaiah. The temple authorities thereby misrepresent God to the people. They imposed a burden on the people that they could not bear and forbade them to live in the dignity that God bestowed on them as his own people. In effect, they make God out to be distant, inaccessible only to the rich and the privileged, instead of a God to be trusted, a God to whom one could turn. The corrupt practices by which they maintain the temple cult maligned the reputation of God, a God of the fatherless and the widow, the God whom Jesus called Father and taught people to approach him as children do a father. So what does this episode have to teach us? Do we make it hard for the poor and the needy and the socially marginalized to approach God? How do we regard our church when we say our church? Of course, we mean the building, the place where we worship. Do we focus on the upkeep and the adornment of the sanctuary more than on those whom God wants to be in, in his presence. And I've sought to impress on the leaders of the church that I serve that the church building should be seen as a means to an end. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be attention given to its upkeep and its adornment, but we should always see the church as a place where we can nurture community, where we can build up one another in the face so that we may go out from the building renewed, strengthened, and encouraged to love and to serve. That's how, in fact, we dismiss our people at our church, go out to love and serve the Lord. The church is a gathering place where we are refreshed in spirit so that we, in turn, may refresh others. 
Or how do we regard those who come to the church to visit? Do we expect them to present themselves without blemish or defect? It's interesting, when I talk with people in the town where my church is, some will say, I don't think I can be around those people. Uh, I don't even have uh, a suit or nice clothes to wear. I don't know how I'd feel among them. So we make it uncomfortable for them to be with us because of how we present ourselves. Do we imagine ourselves to be without blemish or defect? We ought to realize that, that we can alienate those who are genuinely searching for God. And so we should be sure that our lives do not constitute a barrier of access to God. And our lesson teaches us nothing if not that this kind of religion can be the worst enemy of faith. To God, there is no distinction. God is no respecter of persons. We, we read this uh, in, in uh, the Acts of the Apostles, for example. No one should presume that their social status, their wealth, their education, their professional success sets them apart from others, at least before the eyes of God. Before God, all stand on level ground. That's why the Apostle Paul insisted in the first chapter of his letter, first letter to the Corinthians, that his message is the same, regardless of who he's addressing. That is, he preaches Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Jesus anticipates his crucifixion in his interaction with the temple authorities. That seems very clear. Destroy this temple precisely is what they are going to do. He constitutes a threat. It's worth noting that Jesus' statement about destroying the temple, which John alone records, was the basis of the accusations of some of the false witnesses in Matthew 26, 61, Mark 14, 58, and the taunting comments of the spectators at the crucifixion Matthew 27:40 and Mark 15:29 The authorities fear him. He constitutes a threat. He is going to abolish temple worship. And what does that mean for them? They're going to be deprived of their livelihood. And so they can't stand they can't stand this. They 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 have to get rid of him. But then we should also see that they will not succeed. Jesus says that in three days he'll be raised up, crucified in weakness, raised in power, giving us access to God, making us sons and daughters of this God together in him. This is, this is the good news on which this passage ends. Amen. We can take a few moments to discuss any uh, questions or comments that you may have uh, about the confessional lesson or about this, this text in John's Gospel. Yeah, Paul? The passage, and that's righteous anger over sin. And, um, you know, we've jokingly said that the church mantra these days is, let's just be nice. Where in reality, as Jesus pointed out, we need to speak out against sin. 
and uh, not be afraid to do so, sometimes even angrily. I think that's I think that's legitimate. I think that you can see this as a display of righteous anger, as well as a dramatization of a message that um, that needs to be uh, that needs to be heard by these people. Yeah. I think it's interesting too when Jesus says, "In three days I will raise it up." The Pharisees got it. They heard it loud and clear. Because when they, when Pilate had it crucified, they said, "Put a guard," because he said this deceiver said in three days. So they they knew, they got it, they know exactly what he said. Um, I think that uh, the Gospels tend to. You now I was thinking about this in connection with the passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, when King Herod consults with the, the wise men, and they know about the prophecies um, that can that can lead Herod to the place where the Christ child is, so I think generally the Gospels do present these enemies of Jesus as knowing the Scriptures, um, and um, yeah, they're not they're not ignorant. Yeah. Anyone else? If not, uh, will you please stand for the parting benediction? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.